Well, good morning. Isn't Doug just the most discerning individual you've ever met in your life? I'm glad that he's picked that out. I have learned to say ufta and yabetcha. Um, perhaps not quite right, but at least I get it right. We got stuck in a snowdrift a few years ago, and the state trooper had to come and rescue us. It was only about eight miles left to our home. I've never heard so many uftas in my whole life as he drove us back. I wasn't quite sure what he was saying, but I think it's kind of legal. I was uh, thinking the other night when we were hearing about all the boasts of Minnesota and all the 10 best things, uh, we've, now, uh, we've now had 10 winters in North Dakota, so I was trying to think about 10. I came up with a few. Um, you might know this, but our mountain clearing project is just about complete in North Dakota. Uh, so that's a real achievement. There's a tree just outside of Bismarck. It's our state forest. Um, <coughs> I don't know how many of you know this, but on the north-south roads in North Dakota, every 15 miles there's a correction bend just to sort of keep things going. It's just to make sure that driving across North Dakota is the most exhilarating road trip in the whole of America. And uh, so just to fill you in, those are some of the boasts that we have, and uh, we love being where we're at. Just a couple of unashamed plugs this morning, if I may. Um, the first one is, uh, every year we put together an amazing partnership event, and we have some great friends from Minnesota that join us each year. The details are at the back there. This coming year, it's in February in Clearwater in Florida. You see the golf out of one window in your room, and you see the... Uh, the intracoastal through the other. Sound okay? Uh, we'd love you to think about that if uh, you do those kind of things. Uh, Trinity has started a men's soccer program, and uh, we already have a full schedule for this coming year, but that's just one of multiple brochures that are at the back there. We'd love you to check things out, like pack your bags, graduate programs, and some of the other opportunities that are there. And then let me just mention my book briefly as well, and then in a few seconds, we're going to watch one more video. But I wrote this book called Faithful Stories of Trust, Courage, and Resilience. It really traces, to some extent, the last 10 years and a little bit more of the miracles that have occurred out on the prairies of North Dakota. I asked Doug Weed, whose name might be familiar to some. He used to be a presidential historian on uh, news programs. I asked him if he would write the foreword. His father was the president under whose leadership we actually moved to the facility in Ellendale. You might not know this, but in the late 60s, two iconic buildings on one of the campuses of the University of North Dakota that happened to be in Ellendale burnt down. They don't talk a lot about it. We're not quite sure how it all came about, but some think maybe a Bunsen burner was left on in a laboratory. But these two beautiful buildings, one had actually been built with Carnegie money. And the state decided that it was time to divest themselves of this campus down in Ellendale. At that time, Trinity was in Jamestown, North Dakota, and Roy Weed, who was a courageous leader, he was an executive presbyter with the Assemblies of God, he decided he would go after that campus. I didn't know this until I started to correspond with Doug Weed, but over a thousand institutions applied to have that campus. Some offered full price. Three state universities tried to take it over. A police academy wanted to use it. There was a school for the deaf that wanted to use it. Over a thousand credible institutions, and Roy Weed courageously built political connections, got to know the governor. He went down and he lobbied in the, the state house. And eventually it was decided that 
this might be an option, but in order for that to happen, just think of this, try and imagine this happening in 2022. In order for that to happen, two things had to take place. It had to have a passage of a new uh, rule or law through the state house, uh, and that needed to pass by a two-thirds majority in the state house, and then it needed to go to a statewide referendum. And guess what? All those years ago in 1970, not only did it go through the state house, but it had a massive majority in a statewide referendum. And as a result of that, Trinity was able to take over one of the campuses of the University of North Dakota for the grand sum of $1. And that's how Trinity ended up in Ellendale. So if you didn't know that story, miracles are right in the foundation, and we want miracles to continue. We want to graduate students who are not satisfied with anything less than the miraculous presence of Jesus in all that they do, and we want to model that, and we've been doing that over the last 10 years. We've been able to complete nearly $20 million worth of campus renewal without incurring a single dime in debt, which has been a miracle all of its own, and there are pictures and stories and all kinds of things in there. Actually, I see sneaked in a little chapter on our early lives when we led a school in South Africa, which was also filled with miraculous stories and wonderful things. So it's not for sale. It is for donation of $10 or more. And every single penny of this is going to go into an endowment fund. Why? Because we believe that we need a future with young men and women, well-trained, well-equipped, critical thinking, going into God's work debt-free. And so that's what we're out to, out to achieve, and every dime will go to help the next generation of Christian leaders. We have a very vibrant graduate school at Trinity. Carol leads that. We have some very high-profile leaders from around the nation. Our national leader of Speed the Light, several district youth directors and others. It's been the privilege of our lives. We sometimes feel quite overwhelmed at the goodness of God that he's trusted us with us. Five master's programs and one of the most cutting PhD programs we know in the Pentecostal world, and we know the Pentecostal world well. And so we've put together a little video. It'll show you some of the graphics of the buildings that have been renewed. But just for your information and for your prayers, mostly for your prayers, we're going to roll this video, and then we're going to get into God's Word together. So let's do that. In 2014, Trinity Bible College took the courageous step of launching a graduate program. We now have several master's degrees and a cutting-edge PhD, each one incredibly relevant, each one meeting really strategic needs in the lives of Christian leaders, and we've been thrilled at the development of the graduate school. It's not just about getting a degree. It's about growing yourself as a person. It's about us putting skills and tools in your hands that can help you navigate your context. Trinity graduate programs are all designed around a practical theology mindset. In other words, how do we take big God ideas and apply them to our culture? And so Trinity is a unique opportunity for people to get off a flat line, to get out of the comfort of their own long-term ministry and to be able to be stimulated to meet the needs of the culture and the context in which they live and minister. One of our students said to us, I would not be in ministry today if it had not been for this program. 
The programs at Trinity are very accessible, but we also have some of the finest faculty from all parts of this nation and different parts of the world, and they are fully engaged with our students. Students are able to join us without necessarily having completed an undergraduate degree, but through life experience and through their ministry experience, there's a pathway into our graduate studies. We are so excited because many students who would never have considered a master's degree have achieved and have achieved brilliantly because of the alternate pathway. All of the graduate programs are web-based. You never have to leave the comfort of your home or your office. We are highly committed through an engaged faculty, through multiple Zoom meetings, and through the opportunity to come onto campus just as often as you want to. The PhD degree at Trinity Bible College and Graduate School is available as a research degree, very much like the European model. There's no coursework, there are no comprehensive exams. Over four years, we work with you through seminars, leading ultimately to a sizable piece of research work that is eventually externally and internally examined through a verbal defense. I think some people are apprehensive because they haven't studied for a number of years. But I want to encourage you to examine what we have to offer really closely because it is achievable, it is affordable. I want to assure you that our faculty will journey with you through this process. You need never ever feel alone. And you are well suited to be able to do this if you're committed to improving your own life and ministry. Almost nothing in my life has created such passion as these programs because we've seen the result in people's lives, the impact through them into the communities in which they serve, and we would love to serve you. So there you go. If you haven't ever been to Trinity, there are some visuals. It's a, a wonderful campus, I think one of the prettiest in the country. I do not have any slides for you today, and the reason for that is I need you to come with me in your imagination. I'm hoping that I can paint some pictures into your brains that will give you a very graphic insight to a part of the Bible that most of us know really, really well. I'm referring to Luke 15. If you know anything about that part of Luke, it's the story of lost things. It starts out in the very first part of the chapter about the lost sheep that you might remember. I'm going to explain it in a moment. It goes on to the lost coin, and then it speaks to us about the lost son, perhaps the best-known parable of Jesus out of them all, the prodigal son that we often refer to. So come with me, if you will, and develop an imagination. I want to try and paint a picture for you. If you go today and back then in the time of Jesus to the Sea of Galilee where the most of his ministry took place, you will know that the Sea of Galilee, get a picture, is a kind of a heart-shaped sea. It's fed by the waters coming out of the snow melt in Lebanon, and then it exits down the Jordan Valley all the way to the Dead Sea. It's a very, very vibrant sea, beautiful in so many ways on the eastern side of the Golan Heights. The western side is Nazareth where Jesus grew up. So imagine that heart-shaped sea, beautiful Sea of Galilee that we read about so often in the Bible, and then come with me right to the top tip of it where the Jordan flows in, and you'll find there is a city that's there to this day, if you ever visit Israel, called Capernaum. 
It's well known because that's where Peter came from. We know that most of the disciples would have had a lot of familiarity with Capernaum. And Jesus actually visited there many, many times. So right there, you're getting the picture on the northern shore. And if you get that picture, there are a few things that you need to add. Just lay some texture and a few contours. First of all, in Capernaum was one of the grandest synagogues that had been built in the whole of the Galilee. It was a kind of a Grecian-style building. It was built right at the top of the main street. So get this picture of an elegant, beautiful synagogue, central to the city. Everybody could see it. And then you walk down the stairs like this from the synagogue. And then there was a long, straight road. And that would have been classically like any kind of Middle Eastern town. There would have been markets on each side, people trading their wares, donkeys and camels and smells and noises, all the way down this main road from Capernaum's synagogue. And then it would come to a crossroads where there was a big sort of east-west highway, if you like. Onto the one side, you read about it, it's the Decapolis, you, you read in the Gospels. And over to the east, it was all the way up eventually to Damascus. And then over to the other side, it would go down the western shore of the Galilee and eventually all the way down to the large city of Jerusalem, for example. So here is the road coming down from the synagogue, north-south, and then east-west, it's intersected by a main thoroughfare that goes east-west as well. So north-south, east-west, main thoroughfare. And then the road from the synagogue didn't stop there. It actually continued straight on out into a very significant fisherman's wharf. And that's where the people would come in with their boats and they would tie up their boats. And of course, a big part of the local economy was the selling of fish because the sea was so productive. So you're getting this picture. Here's the synagogue. Here's the main road going down. It intersects another road that's a very busy thoroughfare. And then it goes straight out into the Sea of Galilee in a major fisherman's wharf. If we take the wider context of Luke chapter 15 and compare it to the other Gospels, we know that at least that this was the primary place where tax collectors would set up their booths. I mean, it's pretty obvious you're going to set up your booth right at that intersection of commerce, right? So as people go east and west and north and south and bring in their boats and unpack the, the fish from the ships, there was the tax collector, as shrewd and as clever as you could ever imagine already creaming off profits from people doing trade in this very vibrant town called Capernaum. We have every reason to believe that one of those tax collectors was Matthew, or sometimes called Levi as well, and he would set up his booth there, and so before anybody could trade or buy or sell, guess what? The tax collector got his cut, and people resented it really badly. It's no wonder tax collectors were not very popular people in Israel at that time. Well, Jesus is standing there one day, and he's seeing all this hustle and bustle, and he sees the donkeys and the camels and the coming of business and the going of business and the trade along the east-west road, and he watches this man collecting taxes, and he thinks, that guy's got some initiative, you know. He's doing pretty well for himself, and so shocking the rest of the people in the crowd, Jesus walks up to this individual and says, hey, I see you're pretty inventive, and you're certainly very entrepreneurial. I wondered if you would join my ministry team. Shocking. 
I mean, let me give you a modern day parallel. Here we've got Keith who took the offering today. His church is thriving and growing in Little Falls. And he really feels that he needs a vibrant youth program director or a youth pastor. And so he goes down to the local high school and there's the well-known drug dealer just outside of the gates. And he's ruining your kids' lives. He's trading with all these drugs, making a fortune for himself, ruining people's lives in the process. And Keith thinks that guy's got some initiative, you know. And so he goes up to that local local guy says, hey, you're doing really well. I wondered if you'd become the youth pastor at the local Assemblies of God church. I mean, that's how shocking it was to local people. We read it in a sanitized form today, but just get a picture. It was shocking. And so impressed was this man that he said to Jesus, I'll give up everything. I'll follow you. Please come to my house. I want to entertain you. I want to talk more about all of this. And without giving it a second thought, Jesus crosses the railway line, goes to the wrong side of town, and he goes in with this man whose friends were all the wrong kind of people. They didn't belong to the cream of society. They were the people that had become outcasts because of their choices and lifestyle. And Jesus is in there and actually feeling quite comfortable and right at home. And outside the door, get the picture, is his disciples and along with his disciples, the forever present Pharisees. You know about the Pharisees, right? Just the hypocrites of the time. They had a problem with everything that Jesus did. And Jesus is in there enjoying the company, sharing his redemptive love. And he looks around he says, I wonder where the boys are. They don't seem to be here. So he excuses himself for a second. He walks back to the door and he looks outside. He says, everything okay, guys? And they shake their head. No, it's not all okay. It's really not okay. And actually, for the first time in a long time, the disciples and the Pharisees are in absolute agreement. Jesus, it's not good for you to be seen in there. That's not a good crowd. This is not doing our reputation. Our parents are going to hear about this sooner or later. And our whole ministry enterprise is going to come crashing down. Jesus, this is not a good idea. Jesus said, you don't think it's a good idea? What's wrong with you? They shake their head, not a good idea, Jesus. It's really not a good idea. Jesus scratches his head. He says, I tell you what, I tell you what, I'll tell you a story. When Jesus tells stories, listen up. Because they load it with amazing insight to life and learning. He says, there was a farmer who had a hundred sheep. They understood that. Most of the Pharisees probably had little farms on the sideline. They did pretty well in business. And he said he was counting these sheep out one night and getting them back into the pen. And he gets up to 90 and 95, 96, 97, 98, 99. One's missing. He said there was one out of the hundred that was missing. And so Jesus goes to great lengths to explain to these people who are listening to him that he put the 99 sheep safely inside the pen and then he went out to look for the one that was lost. And almost immediately, especially the Pharisees would say, never. I mean, we all understand sheep die, sheep get lost, things go wrong in business. I had a great uncle who was a sheep farmer. I remember him telling me one day, he said, Paul, sheep are the most Christian animals on the planet. I said, why, Uncle Frank? He says, because they're ready to die at any time for no reason whatsoever. (laughs) 
said, I leave them out in the field one night, I go back the next morning, they're dead. There's no reason for them dying. So everybody understands, a sheep goes missing. You've got a business, a tire goes flat, something goes rotten on the shelves. We all know that we've got to factor into our budgets a certain amount of loss along the way. It's just part of life. And so it doesn't make sense for a farmer to leave the 99 fat found sheep all safe and go out and risk himself and risk everything else to find the one that was lost. And so Jesus emphasizes it. Yes, sir, he says, this man went out to find the one that was lost. You don't get that? They say, no, we don't get that. And Jesus looks right back, says, that's the problem. You'll never understand what's going on in that room with these friends who have found life and hope and future if you don't understand that I'm committed to the one that's lost. You don't get that right, nothing else makes sense. You don't compute that, then everything else will have a skewed reason for how you relate to me. I am committed to the one lost sheep. And if you don't get it, that's the problem. Not much has changed. See, friends, you've got to understand that the whole weight of the biblical narrative is that God is committed to the lost. And if people like us cannot receive a deep awareness of Jesus' commitment to the one, then listen carefully, almost everything else about our lives, our view of the church, our values will be distorted. Because as much as Jesus loves the fat and the found sheep, he's always committed to the one lost. And it's only through the lens of the lost sheep that we will even slightly understand the huge redemptive mission of Jesus on the earth. And so he says, you've got to understand that what's happening in that room is why I came. That's why I was born. That's why I will die. And if you don't get that, you'll never get anything else that I do. And the Pharisees never did. They could never work Jesus out because he's committed to lost people and he's committed to the one. Well, they're still standing there thinking, this isn't making sense, Jesus. We cannot understand the decisions that you're making. Jesus looks back into their confused eyes, sees that they don't get it, says, you don't get it, guys. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you a story. And he launches straight away into another story. And you can almost imagine him saying, oh, no, not another story. We don't understand quite where you're going, Jesus. This has been one of the most confusing days of our lives. And before they could respond, Jesus says, there was a young lady, could have been one of your daughters. You would understand this really, really well. About to be married and looked and saw that a coin had been lost. Now, what you've got to understand about that coin is that these coins were passed down as kind of family heirlooms from grandmother to mother to daughter they were a very big part of the family's sense of well-being. In fact, there are commentators who tell us that some of the coins that Jesus might have referred to had been minted all the way back in King David's time. So they had all kinds of history. They had all kinds of heritage. They were very, very valuable things, not only monetarily, but really valuable to a family. And so when a young lady was about to be married, the mother would pass on some of this treasure, and they would take those coins, and they would embroider them into headbands, some 
sometimes they would dangle down. You can still see Middle Eastern women doing this. And the mother would say this to their daughter. Now, you need to know, my girl, that you're a very special girl. And that boy doesn't really deserve you and neither does his family. My daughter's been married 14 years. My son-in-law still doesn't really deserve her, but we're getting over it. <clears throat> so when you walk down, if they had an aisle back in those days, not quite sure how they did it, I want you to wear that headdress and stand tall and give it a little shake when you walk past the dad. Let him know that his son's doing really well marrying into our household and our family. It had all kinds of meaning wrapped up in it. And this girl's getting ready and she looks at that headdress and one of the coins is gone. Devastating. What do I do, she thinks. Well, of course, if you read the story, she was just such a girl. Do you notice it? Such a girl. I don't know if this happens in Minnesota households. Um... But I have a, a problem. I often can't find things that were not lost in the first place. It just makes no sense to me. You know, I'm looking for a pair of socks and I pull the drawer out and I'm thinking, gotta be here. I'm sure they're here. And, I look. And, then, and then I get really clever. I say, I've been in the army. So I know what it is to establish a grid pattern. So I draw a grid in my mind, so, sort of left and right and up and down. And then I start with A1 and A2. And I go down the grids, up and down, up and down, left and right. I meticulously search through that drawer for a pair of socks. And eventually, in desperation, I say, Carol, they're not here. She shakes her head and rolls her eyes, which I hate intensely, but she comes up and she walks straight up to the drawer, looks down, reaches in, here you go. I'm sure it dropped out of her sleeve. How she manages to do it, I don't know. It is actually a well-diagnosed disease. It's called domestic blindness, and, um, and for some strange reason, it only affects the male of the species. So... Uh, does that happen in Minnesota? Oh, you've given me great courage. I thought I was unique to the, the, to, to the male species. But um, this girl, what does she do? She establishes a real determined purpose. The Bible says she sweeps into the corner. She got the broom out. She started one side of the room. She swept down. She moved perfectly down the room. She got into every last little nook and cranny until what happens? She finds the coin. And Jesus looks back and says, that's exactly how I work. The Father and I are committed to go into every corner, into every place, into every dark spot on the planet. And we are going to do it deliberately and consciously in order that we find what is lost. And if you don't know that passion for lost things and lost people, you will never understand me. See, friends, we've got to just understand this. Uh, putting a Bible on a church pew is not going to have a whole lot of impact if people are not passionate about really reaching into the corners of their towns and their cities and their communities with the love of Jesus in a passionate, deliberate, and conscious way. Evangelism doesn't happen just because we want it to happen. It happens because people become committed to reaching lost people, to making calls, to making visits, to reaching out, to having conversations. And I want to say to you today, please, please understand, it's not something that should be 
burdensome or hard. It should be something that the love of Jesus compels us to do, that we go into those dark corners and we sweep out the crevices and we make sure that that which was lost is saved and that people in our town know that it's not just a chance or a bit of good luck or checking which way the wind's blowing that they might get saved. It's because there's a community that is committed with love and compassion and care to reach lost people. Become strategic. Make the calls. Start the conversations. Right now, there is a lost soul in your community that's only one strategic, deliberate outreach or conversation away from being found. Jesus says, that's what the Father and I do. We strategically commit to finding what is lost. Guess what? The disciples look back and say, don't get it. Just don't get it. They hear the noise behind the door. People happy. Tax collectors feeling affirmed for the first time in their lives. The rabbi has come home. And they're standing amongst the Pharisees and saying, don't quite get it, Jesus. Jesus says, well, maybe another story would help. They say, oh, how much more do we need to take? And then Jesus launches into the most powerful of all the stories, which everyone in his hearing would have understood in every little bit of detail. They would have been able to culturally unpackage it in a way that you and I might never unpackage. He says, there was a boy who had worked on his dad's farm, came to him one day, said, Dad, I wish you were dead. It's not a nice thing for a son to say. Dad says, why? He says, well, I just feel like I'm spinning wheels. I'm wasting my time just going on and on. I bring in the harvest, look after the animals. He said, I want my portion and I want it now. And right at that point, all the Pharisees, oh, they took a deep breath. That's not what kids in our society are raised to do. That's the problem with young people these days. They aren't sensitive. They didn't have to fight any wars or go off and do the hard yards like we had to go. It just everything comes easy to them. The Pharisees are really laying this on. You think it's new? It's happened in every generation. So then, shockingly, the father concedes and he says, Okay, boy, I will cut you your portion of the inheritance. The Pharisees are saying, Please don't tell these stories. We don't want any kids getting ideas. This is not a good narrative. But Jesus continues. He says, and so the father cut the boy's inheritance, gave it to him, and then he sort of really rubbed it in a little bit. He looks at the Pharisees right in the eyes. He says, the boy goes off, and he squanders it on cheap women. <laughs> this is, you could see the sweat on their brow. I mean, Jesus wasn't particularly sort of sanitized in the way he described it. He had a lot of friends while it was all going well. You know the story, right? And then Jesus, seeing that they really are getting a little bit distressed by the story, thinks, I'm going to really, I'm going to put the knife in and give it a little bit of a twist. He says, he got so desperate that he had to go and care for pigs. I mean, pigs and Pharisees were just like, that was, that, that was vomit material right there. <laughs> Jesus, seeing them not enjoying the story, says he even had to fill his belly with pig's food. 
The Pharisees are taking a step or two back saying, this is so uncomfortable. This is so countercultural. This, this story is just so way out. We're not quite sure where this is going. And just as they're about to disengage because the story is so dramatic in their hearing, Jesus says this, the son comes to his senses. You know the story, right? And he says, I'm going to go home for, um, to my father. The, the Pharisees say, no way. Because you know what happened in those days? If a son did what that son did, whether it was whether the father had agreed or not and left the household do you know that religious Jewish families they do it to this very day they will go back into the boy's room they will take the last of his belongings they will literally have a cremation of his socks and his pants and his last bits of clothing they will put it all in a box they will go out they will have a burial and this is what they'll say this son of mine that was alive is now dead and dead to me forever that's how final it was we read it and we think, oh, well, you know, boys come to, no, this was a dramatic cultural issue going on right here. So the Pharisees saying, no, he can't go home. Please not the boy. No, he shouldn't go home. This isn't a right thing to do. Our society will be really, really upset if these sort of things happen. And Jesus speaks about the boy making his way back from that far land and sitting on the porch every day as the elderly father. He would go out every single day at the same time and he would scan the horizon and he'd ask his heart just one more time, could it be that my son will come home? Maybe today's the day. And over and over again, the days would come and the days would go and the son wouldn't come back and it would be another day that he'd lay his head on his pillow and say, this son of mine who was mine is now gone. Oh, I wonder if one day he'll come home. And so he went out, he sat down on his porch chair again one day and as he looks out, scanning the horizon, there's a little dot in the horizon and everything in the father's heart goes pop. He starts to think, maybe this is it, could it, maybe? No, it can't be. I've sat here too many days. I don't want to be disappointed. So he looks down and then he looks up again the dots got just a little bit bigger and it seems to have a familiarity about it and the dad's heart is getting more and more excited he can feel the goosebumps up and down his arms as I do right now and he's starting to think to himself just maybe my son's coming home it could be that this could be him and so he stands up and gets on his tippy toes and he looks a little bit further and it looks just like his son's gate and he's thinking it could be it might be it may be my boy who was lost and was gone might be coming home and then he looks again the dots got a little bit bigger he thinks he recognizes his boy and then he does something that no dignified Middle Eastern man would have ever done from that day to this he reaches down he gets the back hem of his robe he pulls it up and he straddles it between his knees and he runs don't do that that's not dignified the neighbors will be very confused but by this point, the dad does not care. And he takes off at a trot and he sees the boy and it's his son. And running as fast as he can, he launches himself and he grabs his boy who still smells like pigs, but he hugs him, he kisses him on both cheeks. And he says, the son of mine who is dead is now alive and he's back home. And by this time, back in the homestead, every window has got a face in it. Everybody's staring out at this thing that's going on just a little way down the road. 
and all the servants are shaking their heads and the family are really distressed and worried. The father's lost the little bit he had. What's going on right now? And then the father turns round and the Pharisees again understood the impact of what he was saying and stares back at the house. He says, hey, 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 bring the sandals. And everybody goes, no, 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 not the sandals. He says, yes, the sandals. And while you're about it, bring the ring. They all go, oh, no, 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 not the ring, for that's for special guests who are going to contribute to the economy of the household, not for a boy like this that's let you down and shamed you for so long. And he says, bring the robe, bring the ring, and while you're about it, bring sandals. I'm going to put shoes on this boy's feet. And as they walk in back and the father's celebrating and the whole household is confused, he shouts at the top of his lungs, get the fatted calf. We are going to have a celebration like we haven't had ever on this household. We are going to celebrate my son who was dead and is now alive again. He will have a robe. He will have dignity. He will have a, he'll have a home. He'll have a ring on his finger. He'll have shoes on his feet. And we are going to kill the fatted calf and celebrate him coming back. Amen. The Pharisees really struggled culturally to understand and although there's a second part of the story that's very relevant about the older son, I can imagine Jesus pausing, having been quite animated in telling the story. And through the ages, he pauses in our presence today. And he says to the good people at Lake Geneva, you're not going to understand anything about me unless you understand that the lost son means everything. Your worship will be inhibited. Your Bible reading will be distorted. You will become obsessive about incidentals and miss the weightier issues of the law. You will get tied up with minor parts of your faith and remain confused inside of your heart unless everything is aligned, everything. Our theology, our Bible reading, our giving, our values, our friendship, our fellowship, our worship, unless everything is aligned with my passion for lost people. That's why we're here. We're the largest body of people on the planet that exists for the sole benefit of non-members. We do. Sunday mornings, friends, probably the most vibrant, wonderful services in your church. Love them, celebrate them, get there on time, stay to the end, raise your hands in worship, all of that stuff. But please remember that it actually becomes a shadow and even a nonsense unless your heart is deeply stirred for lost people, for the one, for those that need a strategic commitment, which is what we call missions, to go far and go wide. And for those that are just so unlikely and unlovable, 
We had a missionary director visit our campus a little while ago. He began preaching, and about two or three minutes into it, I think I record some of this in this book, he paused, slightly awkward pause. He said, I feel like I've been here before, but I never have. I'm thinking, no, I don't know that you've ever been here. So he preaches a little bit more, and then he looks around, sees our students on those rows. He says, I just feel like I've been here. Then he goes on about 20 minutes into his message. He says, oh, he says, I got it. He says, there's a little archipelago in the Indonesian islands inhabited by a violent tribe that have had a notorious and infamous history. They called the boogie people. So it might help you to know that when the early Dutch sailors went to what was then the Dutch East Indies, this tribe was so violent they could do no trade with them and they'd sail home and if their kids were not going to bed on time, the sailors would say, if you don't obey, the boogeyman's going to get you. That's where it comes from. He said they've been unreached, untouched. And we wondered for years what we could do to reach this group that just seems so beyond the reach of the gospel. I said, until a young missionary couple came, they said, we'll do what it takes. We'll give everything. We need to get into those dark corners and those crevices. Are we going to reach the boogie people? He said, that was nearly 20 years ago. We now have a vibrant church in those islands. And people have come to Christ. And I suddenly realized that that young couple are Trinity alum. And I feel in this room what I feel when I'm with them. And I said, bring it on. Please, Jesus, please, Jesus, please let that be the continued legacy and story of our colleges and our universities and our young people committing to ministry that they'll go anywhere, anytime, no matter what the cost, to reach people who would not hear if they didn't do it. That's why Jesus told the story. Eventually the disciples got it, the Pharisees never did. And it's our choice today to be disciples or Pharisees. Jesus loves the lost. The 99 are safe in the pen. He cares for you. He'll bless you on Sunday. But he's still got a greater commitment to those that are outside the church. He'll go into dark cornices and crevices to find that one coin of great price. And despite how obnoxious and bad and culturally difficult people can be, he's committed to the lost son. And we should too. And I said one last time. If you don't get it and process it and ask God to put it deep in your heart on a day like today, there are going to be some real awkward parts of your journey with the church because you won't get the big picture if you don't understand the primary goal. Lost people matter to Jesus. Stand with me.
thank you for paying such amazing attention, coming with me on that journey. I know that for Carol and me, for all the many things we get to do, the privileges of life and ministry, I know we want it to be filtered through hearts that are compassionate and caring and love lost people. I believe, Pastor Mark, you're going to get that motel up and that swimming pool's going to be amazing. But you know what? We've heard it again and again these last few days. There's only one reason why we enjoy all of these facilities so that people feel the call of God to ministry. Young people respond to the call to mission and that our churches are enriched by right-spirited people who condition their mentality by a love for lost people. We're just visitors. We leave on Saturday. I can probably say things that your pastor can't say. If you've been a pain to your pastor, start loving lost people and you'll discover what a nice person he really is. <laughs> and above all, stop being a pain. If you've withheld passion and love and care, stop it. Because lost people will condition your life and you'll become the fruitful branch that God intends you to be. I know that Minnesota pretty much leads the nation in the mobilization of missions. But why not lead the nation by multiples of two and five and ten? Why not? Tell you what, friends, you've got a better start than almost anywhere else I know. So why shouldn't all of our churches become seedbeds of Holy Ghost ministries? And you become the greatest enthusiast and supporter and backer of that young person who wants to do something for God in their lifetime. Why? Because you love lost people. You see, everything comes into alignment when we understand what Jesus was trying to achieve by the three stories. So join me as I pray for our churches, our fellowship, our young people,